All right, it's Jeff Mayhew. Wait, where am I? It's John Beatty. It's politics and parenting on vacation. John, how are you doing today? Jeff, Jeff, my my thing is to say the vacation's over. So you're you're just ruining that whole bit right there. I need. Hey, look, if I'm gonna run, if I'm gonna run a political campaign and get you through to, on the on January 18th as the winner. Okay, I need a little time with my wife before I don't see her for the next six months, you know? <laughs> oh, man, that's what I've been thinking. Like, it's a, it's a sprint until June 18th, June 18th, not January 18th, but it's a sprint. And we got a, you know, um, oh, was it after church today, we had a pancake breakfast and I was just collecting signatures. And it's it's good, you know, like, to get get that progress. That's a nice measurable goal to get against. It uh, actually makes a difference. And um, it's uh, no, I, I'll let you take a week off. No problem. Yeah, well, don't worry. I'm. I've brought lots. Are you still reading? Oh my gosh! Look, I even brought. I got like all my binders in my notes. I brought it. I brought all my work with me. Don't worry. But just not having the kids around it or giving time with my wife and time that she loves to sleep. Look, my wife loves her sleep. That's part of the thing we're getting. We're going on vacations just so she can sleep in. I still only sleep four or five hours a night, so I got plenty of time to do work. And then I get to let her sleep and I'm like the good husband because I'm just like out of the way, right? And then mm -hmm. when she wakes up, we go do whatever and I get credit for being on vacation like a normal person. So I'm excited. I'm so she's not going to hold against you when we have a special guest tonight. Is that what you're saying? I, she wasn't terribly thrilled that I scheduled this this way, but uh, she's well, very- To be fair, I, I'll take all the credit and blame. Blame, credit and blame. I, I scheduled this one, so well, you know, it's not on you. We scheduled it before I booked the vacation. Like, you know, that's not, it's nobody's fault. It's, I, my wife is just of the mindset of like, well, just cancel it. And I'm like, nah, I don't really want to cancel it. I really want to do this episode because I'm so excited to talk to this person. Um, speaking of, Tim Carney's on the show today. Did you know that, John? I did. Let's get going. All right. On our show today, we have a special guest. Uh, Tim Carney. He is a columnist at the Washington Examiner. Uh, he's a fellow at AEI, and he's got a new book coming out, Family Unfriendly. It is out on March 18th, and you can actually pre-order it today. Tim, thanks for joining the show with us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. So, so Tim, I hear you're a, a t-ball coach. How do, you, how do you balance your family and uh, t-ball practice? Um, so t-ball... Uh, as you might imagine, is not the most uh, high-skilled sport that people play. If we get the kids to run the bases in the right order by the end of the season, that's uh, that's an accomplishment. So I actually manage it by not ever having more than one meeting a week. So I, I once emailed somebody to explain the nature of this team that I, I formed back in Maryland. I said, this is not your child's first step on the way to a D1 scholarship. And the next day in the parking lot, a dad came up to me and said, so was I already supposed to have taken the first step? So I, I, I love T-ball and that was, that was a, a great experience when I got to do that constantly. I, uh, I used to coach my kids T-ball team and I told my wife after the first practice, I said, I never really realized because I played T-ball and like my memory of playing T-ball, we were <laughs> heroes. Like we were hitting home runs. We were doing all this Starting stuff. Double plays. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was my memory of it. But then when I went back and I watched my kid, I realized that we were just playing in the dirt. Like, <laughs> at the end of the day, that's all we were doing. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, Tim, you've got a new article out uh, that just came out Friday. 
um, and it was about Trump's business dealings. I was very interested in this article. I'm surprised it doesn't have more attention on it right now with everything going on with Trump and this whole 14th Amendment thing, because what you talk about in the article is basically he's he's breaking the emoluments clause. Is that correct? Well, I'm not a lawyer. And so I, I don't know if collecting rent and hotel payments from foreign governments counts as an emolument. And there are some people who argue that the president is not, in fact, covered under this. I, I'm not convinced by those defenses of this. But the main thing I talk about, and I've been writing for more than 20 years on the intersection of business and government, is that it's uh, it's bad. It's corruption, basically, for the president of the United States to be taking lots and lots of money from foreign governments and, and state-owned businesses. And something I wrote about after Trump won the election, before he was sworn in, was that the single biggest tenant in Trump Tower in Manhattan is the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. This, at the time at least, was the biggest bank of the in the world. It is owned by the Chinese government. So this isn't just like a bank that's Chinese. This is an agency that the government uses to do its industrial policy, which means to do its politics to try to sort of, you know, if you hear about the developments they do, China does in a country like Jamaica, building a highway, and that's part of their effort to, you know, sway the Jamaican government. That's going through things like ICBC, the Industrial Commercial Bank of China. So when these companies are paying millions of dollars to Trump, well, I don't posit, and I don't think you have to posit that there's any quid pro quo, but we know that Donald Trump is very... Uh, he leans on the personal very heavily. So if somebody treats him well, he responds and says, well, yeah, I'm going to, uh, uh, I like that guy because he's good to me. And sure enough, when Trump entered the White House, he, in 2017, he said, I really have a, a strong bond with uh, Xi Jinping, the the premier over there and the head of the Communist Party there in China. And so it's just a guy, I think it's deeply imprudent at best. For the president of the United States to be pocketing millions of dollars from foreign-owned companies. And ICBC is just one example. And uh, there are others I mentioned in the article, and I poured into a study that the Democrats put out where they tried to argue it was a monument, da, da, da. I set aside the legal arguments. They just say, from a perspective of prudence, it, this is a mistake. So but if you look at the policies of the Trump administration, you could say that towards the end of it, and I guess you know you point out towards the beginning, but towards the end of it, he did seem very kind of hawkish on China. And like, he, he actually put, a, I think, the chip ban in place, yep. some of those those changes and stuff. Do you think there was something where maybe they weren't paying enough to uh, to his hotels in order to do that? Or was it more just like a policy change, realizing like, actually, he has to kind of to set aside all that, if, if it is true, um, what's what's kind of laid out where he was getting money from the Chinese, and has actually like represent the American people and, and think about the American people's interests? I, I, again, I don't think he ever thought of the money he was getting as a bribe or a quid for another quo. But again, you could imagine all sorts of reasons. I mean, you were kind of half jokingly saying, oh, were they not paying the rent on time? But all sorts of reasons why being in a business arrangement with ICBC or having the Malaysian government go ahead and uh, they you know, spend tens of hundreds of thousands at his hotels, uh, why that would be a problem in any way that you could imagine. I mean, one of the things I point out is that we know that some of these people works were expecting something in return. So that's bad. Even if Trump never considered doing something in return, if the Malaysian government is expecting something in concern, that 
in return that throws off the the diplomacy. So, I mean, I thought when it came to foreign policy, actually, that's where I thought Trump was the best foreign policy president we've had since Reagan. I thought he was uh, very sensible, despite the fact that he often said nice things about dictators, the way he actually governed. Uh, he didn't get us into any stupid wars. Uh, he was uh, harsh on, on China in an appropriate manner by the end of the term. I think Biden learned from his foreign policy, including his uh, hawkish stance towards China in a way that uh, Obama didn't understand. So I, I will praise Trump's foreign policy, but it's just so complicating and so imprudent to be pocketing foreign money like that. So you also, uh, I believe, unless I got it confused with another part, you mentioned uh, the Biden situation and the inquiry with uh, Hunter, right? And so like, because that's kind of about business dealings and government oh, yeah. as well, right? So how how can you explain a little bit to our listeners about like that situation comparative to Trump's? Well, so Hunter Biden obviously has been running into different extent of corrupt influence peddling operation using his father's name. When his dad was still a senator, Hunter, he got a job in the Clinton administration. He left. He became a lobbyist, and he named his law firm, his lobbying firm, Biden and Oldeker. The, the and Oldeker was a guy who was Biden's top fundraiser. So this is obviously just saying, hey, a way to get influence with Joe Biden is to give Hunter Biden money. So that was domestic clients. Then uh, Joe Biden becomes a vice president, and that's when Hunter turns after that to bringing in all these foreign clients. It is very obvious to every honest person that the people who were paying Hunter that. Hunter Biden, tens of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, were doing it with the expectation that this won them some favor with the Biden administration. And Joe Biden has repeatedly said, my son did nothing wrong. So in my mind, that means he's fine with Hunter running this influence peddling operation. And the defense of Biden is, well, Biden never actually gave favors to those people. So this, in some ways, is more corrupt because Biden knows that his son is getting rich off of the expectation of favors, which is that problem I referred to earlier. And the best case scenario is that, well, Biden never did anything for it. And I just think from an ethical standpoint, obviously it's worse if there is a quid pro quo, but from an ethical standpoint, getting in that position where everybody looking at it would be saying, is there a quid pro quo here? That in itself is is deeply imprudent and corrupt. Well, so where does this idea of corruption as quid pro quo come from? Because you've mentioned it a couple of times. And like from my reading of history, like our founding idea of corruption isn't isn't direct quid pro quo, but indirect. So like, where is this idea that like it has to be this? Because like you said, a rational person would look at the situation and go, well, even if he didn't say he was going to give something back, now he kind of feels like he kind of owes him, or at least there's an expectation on one party's behalf. And that's really all it takes for corruption, because now you're kind of what happens is you build this relationship with somebody who's giving you money, you're spending time with them. And so now you feel like you have to, you know, yep. scratch their back, if you will. Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is how legalistic we've become as a culture, and especially in the probably 100 plus years. But for it makes sense for corruption laws to be, in other words, uh, criminal corruption laws to be set up so that if you and it currently is, if you go ahead and you say, "Hey, I pay me a million dollars, and I'll pass your this bill subsidizing your company," you'll go to jail. So the quid pro quo is necessary to send a congressman like Duke Cunningham was a Republican from California who went to jail. Who knows what's going to happen with Senator Bob Menendez? 
Um, and if they don't find a quid pro quo there, I'd be surprised. But the quid, it makes sense to say it takes a quid pro quo to go to jail. And then you think of all how much we've sort of declined. This is what uh, Bill Bennett meant in the Clinton years with the death of outrage that people would say, well, if it's legal, who are you to judge? <laughs> that's, that's not a good turn for a society to make, but I think that's one reason that we say, well, if there's not a quid pro quo, it's not corrupt, is because if it's not a quid pro quo, you can't send the politician to jail, basically. Well, that's like political fundraising 101, because it's so much of it is, um, you know, buying access or getting access in one sense where like a lobbyist or a very rich person and their friends can donate to a campaign, understanding that that gives them special access to a politician that may vote on something that's going to affect them. And like, again, like you said, it's not the quote, like quid pro quo in the legalistic sense, but it, it's very, it is very imprudent to put yourself in that position where you kind of allow for the perception of influence peddling. Even if, if, you know, you agree with this hundred percent down the road and you, you know, you, you were going to vote for this no matter what, and you just said, well, these people are going to support me. So I'll take their money. Like it does become a tough thing to prove, but but it's it is like it's tough for people for ordinary Americans to trust their representatives if they think that well this person is just voting because this person gave them that twenty hundred dollar check and then the lobbyist associated with the company gave them a five thousand dollar check like they're just being bought off and so you know I, I do agree like there's that prudent prudential aspect of governance where sometimes it's better to to not put yourself in that situation even if if you know that you know you're not doing anything right as a person but you know, perception is kind of its own reality around that. And I, I think of that as a journalist, too, as far as just credibility, where, I mean, so I've been a speaker for the Federalist Society for over 10 years. And when they get attacked in ways that I think are dishonest, I always want to defend them. And then I think I would ethically have to say Tim Carney has been a Federalist Society speaker for over 10 years. I've gotten, you know, ten to $12,000 all told over that decade from them. But still, I would put that in the article. And then somebody reading it would be like, of course you're defending them. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't affect me. You can't buy me off with $1,000 for it. So I don't write on that. So then when it comes to who I take money from, I have to think, am I willing to say, all right, I have to bracket this. If I'm taking money from everybody, my boss is going to be like, you're not writing anything, Tim, because you're recusing yourself. And so as a politician, there's two different levels. One is a campaign contribution that you're talking about, John. But in the Hunter Biden and the and the Donald Trump case, they're personally getting enriched, like the Duke Cunningham case. And that, to me, is another level. And we could use, you know, Catholic terminology if we wanted to of a near occasion of sin and giving scandal. But I mean, you express that those ideas perfectly in secular terms of reducing the public confidence in uh, in the public leaders and putting yourself in a situation where you'll feel a temptation. So isn't the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, or Hunter Biden, Trump thing, it's more direct than the campaign finance thing. But the campaign finance thing is another like indirect version of corruption, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the donation, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'll, I'll ask John what he thinks. I mean, like, it, it, I think it, it can be, and I think like- are not a, yeah. Yeah, like in general, if someone donates to your campaign, obviously they're trying to, they want you to win, they want you to, to, to succeed in something. So yeah, I would say if you're not in office and you're soliciting campaign contributions, like that's one thing. Because you know they they believe in you for whatever reason that you align with them on some issue. I think um, once you're in office, obviously there's sort of they want you to continue with that. And so like um, 
I think in general, it's fine. I just think like sort of maybe the corporate lobbyist idea kind of is where it gets a little murky where someone will write in again, like there's no quid pro quo because someone writes you the check before the vote. It's the check. I think the, the legal term is like if the check comes after a vote, that's where there's a problem. Um, and so like, you know, lobbyists will just, they'll just write checks, hoping to get access, to get influence where they can explain their position and, you know, maybe get some, some kind of changes, maybe not. You know, I, I think like there's a lot of sort of a, a gambling aspect to it where they just say like, I just want my foot in the door where I can talk to the representative because I represent a big lobby of, you know, uh, bankers maybe, or farmers maybe. And I just want, I want the representative before they vote on this to know what their vote's going to do. And so like, there's no quid pro quo in that sense, but I, I think from the sort of the populist aspect, the normal person, the, uh, what is it, Joe the plumber that's sitting on, on Main Street with his suffering business, hoping that he can maybe get some kind of, of, of meeting with his representative while his business is suffering. He, he looks at that and he says, well, well, people are just buying access. And I think, again, like there's no illegality in terms of collecting a donation from a lobbyist, but it gives that perception that the person representing you is kind of out of touch and not listening to the people in their district. They're listening to the people that live in DC and can uh, grace their, their hallway whenever they want. Absolutely. And uh, one of the, the ironies is that one of the campaign finance bills uh, laws on the federal level, it limits the size of the donation to uh, what is it now? $3,000 in the general and 3000 in the primary, something like that, that a, an individual can give. And so what sprung up after McCain-Feingold and, well, not even McCain-Feingold, in response to some of these things was something called the bundler, which is somebody who can go out and get 50 of these donations in a week. So who's going to have access to lots of people who can cut a $3,000 check and want the ear of a congressman? That's going to be a lobbyist. <laughs> and so the lobbyist throws a party and calls all his clients and says, all of you guys um, come with your $3,000 checks. And then the congressman or the candidate goes and spends a couple hours at the with the townhouse on Capitol Hill and rakes in all those checks. And again, the it's it's the access. That's that's where he's got all the people saying, slapping them on the back and being like, you know, these pharmacy benefit manager or whatever the obscure issue of the day is. And um, so the irony is that the attempts to regulate the campaign finance often undermine themselves. Right. And again, like it's not the same as someone uh putting you on a board and then giving you a million dollars just to like sit there with the hope that if they need you, you can call, call your father or your, uh, you know, your whoever, whatever relation you have in government to help them with whatever their um, international situation is, they can hopefully you can fix it. So like, I, I think like that's, that's the nut of it. Like it's, it's so different in that case where it's American citizens trying to affect an election in one sense, um, you know, and trying to work within the rules, whatever that is. And then someone, absolutely absolutely circumvent circumventing that by finding this consulting company that they have where their name matches the name of someone else uh, with a lot of position and then sort of selling that name um you know and and again like um maybe not actually having an influence and that's kind of its own fraud in this in you're either defrauding your clients or yeah. you're uh defrauding the american people yep well um a lot of people think that if you're like against campaign finance you're like against money in politics but like, as you mentioned, the fixes for campaign finance has actually kind of 
created more problems than they've solved. And so like John and I talked a few weeks ago on the podcast and, and my idea is raise the limits, right? Mm. Allow individuals to donate more to campaigns. And what you do is you cut out that middleman of the, the business transaction essentially. Yeah. And so it's, it's, you're actually, it's going to be more representative of the people. Um, you're going to know where the money's coming from for the, uh, for the candidate, because it's not going to be traveling through all these PAC systems where it's kind of hard to follow. If you're, if you're an individual citizen and you're trying to figure out like who's donating, like go through the, the financial, you know, yeah. uh, Reckowitz forms. It's, you just don't have time. If you got kids, if you got a job, like you can't keep up with that type of stuff. It's just too complicated. So it it takes out a part of it. It makes it more direct, right? Because we're talking about direct versus indirect, right? If it's money for a representative of your county, that's direct. And it's not corruption. It's direct representation in a way because that person's getting into office because of your donations for them. I think the problem comes is where you have these you, because of the low donation amounts, it becomes difficult for uh, regular people to fundraise. And then you get uh, you get yep. money from all these different areas coming through these PAC systems. And it could be coming from a different state. It could be coming from a different country, potentially. Um, and it's just really hard to track. There's more democratic accountability if you're getting a check from a millionaire. I remember one of the first races I was covering was in Iowa. Uh, Western Iowa, and I'm from New York City, and I had moved to DC. So my knowledge of rural America in 2002 was approximately zero. And I was working for Bob Novak, great political journalist. And he's like, you need to, you know, try to predict who's going to win each of these Republican primaries and these open races and Democratic primaries. And so in this Western Iowa, forgetting the name of the guy, but there's one guy who seemed like this guy is a clear favorite. He's the you know, a county Republican chairman. He's obviously got tons of money on hand, huge name recognition. And I called around and people, among the really knowledgeable sources said, oh no, that guy, that the guy you think is a front runner, he, he's, I think he's done. I said, why? He said, well, see where so much of his money is coming from. It's from a very controversial hog farmer. As a New Yorker, I didn't know what those words meant. What made a hog farm <laughs> controversial? And the guy I was talking to was like, oh man, you've never smelled one. So apparently this, the, and it ended up sinking the candidate that he, he was getting so much money that when on the state level, he had gotten giant checks from this hog farmer. And when he tried to, you know, move up to Congress, that sunk him. So there was democratic accountability. If there's a hog farmer who's funding you so that he doesn't have to make the county not stink, well, that's going to hurt you. And I think, that, again, that sort of thing allows for more democratic accountability than everybody raising their money from lobbyist bundlers, yada, yada. Absolutely. So, um, Tim, you've got a new book coming out. Um, I'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, I'm I'm excited to read it. I One of our things were politics and parenting. We're always kind of talking about family and like how does family integrate into government and how how much should government think about family when it's <laughs> about, you know, its rules and regulations? Because at the core, the family is like, it's the core structure of like building out a strong government and building out a strong society and a strong union, if you will. So um, tell us about your your endeavor here. So uh, my wife and I, we have six kids and I've been a political journalist for 25 years and I get to travel around the country and talk to people. And so it's one of the things that I, I've spent the last few years, whether it's in Iowa or Miami or, or California or Israel even, and talking to people about 
family? Do you have kids? Why don't you have kids? Why do you think the birth rate is falling? I mean, you guys have probably talked about this a lot on this show. We're at about 1.6, 1.7 babies per woman in the United States. That's better than Europe, but the replacement level is 2.1. And we were at about 2.1 right before the Great Recession. The recession happened. We recovered. The birth rate did not. And so I, in my mind, that reflects something sick about our society. Not that people are all choosing that they don't want babies. I think that's part of it. But if you look at the ideal family size in the US, it's actually gone up. When people are polled by Gallup, they say, oh, 2.7 is the ideal number of kids. And the when you ask them, okay, but how many do you hope to have? It drops down a little, but it's still above 2.1. And then in the end, when they start having kids and they or they they aren't married or whatever, and their life goes on, people say, okay, I'd settle for just about 1.9 and then they still have to settle even lower than that so that to me reflects that something is wrong with our culture my argument is that it is cultural that we have a family unfriendly culture in a variety of ways one we talked about t-ball right now the average parent thinks they have to send their kid off to some super travel sports complex and year-round training and he's got to specialize at age 12 it makes it a slog it eats up all your family time a lot of parents think they have to helicopter. I used to live in Montgomery County where free range parents would get arrested for letting their kids walk to the park. And so the helicopter mandates, the travel team trap are part of it. In the middle and later part of the books, I, I try to go a little deeper. I argue that uh, it's the job of the culture to support parents. That is, we shouldn't be neutral on family or not family. Family is the norm. It's a fundamental institution of culture. And our culture should support uh, should support parents, but and ultimately the values of our culture are family unfriendly. The hyper individualistic, the the notion of seeing humans as fundamentally free floating individuals, untethered to anybody else, is I think historically incorrect. As a Catholic, I, I I outright reject it, and I think what it's done is made it harder to raise kids, and that's why we're having the baby bus we're having. So. That's on a, um, there's a lot there and yep. I love it. I want to, I want to read this book. I'm so like, just turning my head with ideas right now. I was sitting at, um, one of my local breweries and I was talking to a gentleman and he was in his early thirties. He's married, he's local to the area. And we were talking about kids and he's just like, I don't want to have kids. I don't plan to have kids. We don't plan to have kids. He had this almost demonistic view of like procreation and it wasn't his like responsibility and like i've met a lot of people like that mm -hmm. and it's very surprising to have, did you did you find this on your journey at all like is there is there like a subsection of society that's just like look life is so bad i don't want it to continue i i just want to give up and i i am not going to put anything forward yeah i mean well first of all i don't think i don't try to say everybody should have kids i'm in, in the Catholic Church, we have lots of jobs for people who are not going to get married and have kids, priests, nuns, etc. Um, in, in our world, we have lots of people who choose apostolic celibacy, to use a sort of Catholic term for it. So I think a lot of people aren't called to parenthood. But I do think it's kind of the normal thing, the normal adult thing to do. And that's not to say that you're you're weird if that's not what's going on for you, but that that should be an explicit choice to choose something outside of the societal expectations. So that's one of my 
one of my arguments. The people you're talking about. And so there's just one woman I met named Amanda. I was working at a working out of a, a pub down in Southern Maryland and there was a trivia contest and like there ended up being the random people sitting at the end of the bar. And so there was one local cop, there's this one uh, woman, Amanda and her husband, and she was a traveling uh, salesman of a uh, saleswoman of medical equipment. And she said, no, I don't want to have kids. And then launched into this rant about how unhappy every family is about how she knows people who have kids and who have a disability, and that if she had to deal with a kid with a disability, she would probably hate the kid. But really, she started talking about litter, how much litter there is in the world. And then she started talking about all the geopolitical uncertainty. And so it was this weird mix. It wasn't that coherent, but it was this weird mix of both thinking the world is too bad to bring kids into it, but also that kids are what make the world bad. And she never quite said the latter. But it was it was very clear that that's what she believed. And so this, the last chapter of my book is called Civilizational Sadness. It's based on a belief that we are not good and that that's what causes uh, people to not want to have kids. And that comes out of the culture. That's the most family unfriendly thing about our culture is that it causes this sadness. Because if you think babies are bad, well, everybody who thinks that was a baby. So it also is reflecting on themselves. Well, that's one of the great things about large families is that they they do tend to scale pretty well. You know, like you talked about litter, like you know your your preparation for meals uh, it's actually amortized over the cost of the meal. It's actually less energy uh, per meal, so it it um, it is more energy efficient to have more children. I think. Um, yeah. But I think I think I've been following you on Twitter for a long time, and I I don't know if you mentioned this or someone else in the same sphere, but kind of the idea of like actually car seats is one of those like weird things where it kind of is very anti-family in the sense of like. A car seat is actually kind of wide and it doesn't really fit in a full seat. It actually expands into the seat. So if you have two children, you can kind of fit two car seats in the back of a sedan. But once you get that third child, they actually don't quite fit in the back of the of the sedan. So now you not only is it a third child, you know, an extra car seat and all that stuff, but you actually have to build up, you know, to buy a whole new car third to row, fit yeah. that third child um, in order to make everything work again to to fit within whatever society says. You need to in terms of safety and all that stuff. And again, like those are reasonable things, but it is an, an effect of sort of, well, do I really want that third child? Because it's not just the third child. It's a, it's a minivan or a bigger SUV in order to accommodate them. And statistically, this, this is proven, basically. Uh, so the first two chapters of my book are on the travel team trap and the helicopter parenting. Chapter three of Family Unfriendly is, starts talking about the policy problems. And I cite this study that was called car seats as contraception and what they did because there was not a federal car seat mandate it rolled out state by state and it covered all 50 states eventually they looked at how the birth rate dropped relative to these different states and tried to you know do the thing that statisticians do and, and control for different variables and they found that the entirety of the drop-off happened among married parents who did not go from their second to their third kid. So basically it was people with sedans, people who had a perfectly good Toyota Camry. And they're like, oh, come on, am I gonna have to buy a minivan because of this? And by the way, I'm pro, pro minivan. For the first time, we don't have one now, but definitely when we had younger kids, those automatic sliding gates are incredibly uh, valuable. But the, 
that's another case. And the people who wrote the study said they think it saves about 10 lives a year and it prevents a few hundred births every year. And so again, that's um, one of the many ways in which policy is family unfriendly. One of the big complaints I have in my small town in New York, there were sidewalks everywhere. In Montgomery County, where I used to live, Fairfax County, where I now live, it's hard. Like there's one route that my kids can take to get to the smoothie shop or the, the barber shop that mostly has sidewalks. To walk in the most direct route, you're asking your kids to get run over. My brother lives in Connecticut. He can be, almost hear the roar of the crowd from the field where his daughters play softball. There is no way they could walk there because the roads they would have to walk down are 50 miles an hour without much of a shoulder and no sidewalk. So they have to get a ride there. If, you, if your kids can run to their own softball game, you can let them play more sports. You can have more than two kids. And when we build our culture this way, so some of it really does have to do with policy choices. And again, I spend about two chapters on that. Do you think... Do you think that the policy choices have anything to do with like, I mean, from my perspective, my, I've only been in politics for like three or four years, but from a ground level, I don't see a lot of families, like family people in politics. It's mm -hmm. a lot of single people and it's, it's long, hard work, especially going through the elections to getting like, I mean, John, John and I are doing it right now. Like I didn't see my family as much as I wanted to this week. And it's going to be more difficult going forward. Like just the nature of the beast to get into a position to create policy tends to shape somebody that has a little bit more freedom, if you will, in being single. And therefore, they're just not thinking about these things when they're writing policy. I think that not thinking about it is really a big part. I think there's very few things that I think are deliberately intentional, family unfriendly. I think for the most part, it's, and it's amazing to me as a journalist, I sometimes will read an article and I get to the end, I say, that writer and none of the editors even thought about children. There's always an article about how nobody should have a lawn because it takes so much water to water a lawn. First of all, like I never water my lawn, come on. Second of all, lawns are where kids play wiffle ball and football. And if you said that to the author, they'd be like, Oh, yeah. Well, fine. Good point for families. How did you write 2000 words and not even put in that half a sentence? And I think that happens with the political class. One of the things I just wrote about at the examiner is the brand new financial aid forms for college. Do you guys remember FAFSA, the uh, free application for federal student aid that we all filled out when we were applying to college? It was too many questions. They wanted to shorten it. Good idea. The new formula doesn't take into account how many kids you currently have in college. So it basically says, give us your income, give us your savings. Some portion of that is what you can afford to spend on college. Say it's $25,000. And then you say, okay, but I've got two kids in college. They say, okay, we're going to expect you to spend 25,000 on each. How do you expect me to spend $50,000 when you just said I can only afford 25? That is literally the law that, and Republicans and Democrats both passed it. And with the idea of simplification, with the idea of a you know more fair calculation, none of them knew anybody who had more than one kid, I guess. I have no idea how that happened. Totally thoughtless thing. I'm talking to some people who were talking about overturning it, and they're saying, get Mitt Romney, get Utah lawmakers, because they'll know what, what's going on here. And again, it's totally uh, clueless towards the idea of children, and the policy gets made without children in mind. Well, given that we know that most legislation gets written by staff, I wonder if it's just the the legislator didn't really know because the staff don't have any kids or they're the all young kids. Yeah. 
Yeah, they haven't actually had to send any kids to college yet. Well, as as Ted Kennedy says, 95% of the nitty gritty gets done by the staff. So, you know, and that's another thing, like American people, like, who are you actually sending to office? Are you sending the person you elected to office? Or are you sending the people they hire to office? <laughs> so what other issues do you see that are kind of uh, family unfriendly? Like we're, you're talking about the, the walks with, with sidewalks and things that I was on the school board the past four years. And I, I, that was an issue that would come up where you've got to make kids walk to school and, you know, there's just not the infrastructure. There's definitely some tricky spots where kids have to cross busy walkways in the dark where there's the, maybe like a barely a walkway, no sidewalks and stuff. But like, what are other issues that sort of seem to be kind of, that kind of fly under the radar and are kind of actually very sort of anti-family friendly? I mean, I really, I, I emphasize the walkability a lot because while I'm I'm writing for a broad audience, it is something that I think a, a conservative audience, because I'm a, I'm a conservative guy, most of my readers are going to be conservatives. I think they think walkability is some, you know, hippie thing or some liberal big city thing or park slope or they're anti-car and all of that. And just the freedom we had, I'm Generation X, the freedom we had as kids was liberating to our parents as well we're and because we send our kids to a, our boys to a catholic school that's across the river um most of the time if they need to get to their friend's house we need to drive them and that's a pain for us it makes their life a little less fun it makes our life a little more busy thankfully now we have a, a driver my 17 year old daughter but that's only so liberating for me my parents just i told them where i was going and they knew my curfew was midnight or when i was 12 they, you know, I got on the bike and I didn't know where I was going. And they said, when the streetlights turn on, you come home. And that sort of uh, built environment where cars are made to go slower, where there's uh, sidewalks, where there's cut through on long blocks uh, and that it's expected. While Meanwhile, in Aspen Hill, a neighborhood in Montgomery County, uh, where that's where my Home Depot was, there's a uh, middle school there and the people at the middle school said there should be a sidewalk on this block and everybody on that block said no i've got a great old spruce tree that you're going to chop down and so it wasn't just that people were choosing trees over children it's when a reporter asked one of these homeowners what about the kids walking to school or the kids walking to the baskin robbins there the homeowner said well middle school kids shouldn't be walking alone <laughs> that just was like this dagger in my heart. Of course they should be. Parenting is about giving your kids the ability, giving them an environment that's safe enough that they can explore it on their own. Childhood is supposed to be expansive. Travel sports and a car-centered world both get in the way of an expansive childhood. I agree with the biking. Like I used to bike all the time growing up, like go to the library. Um, I got really into origami one summer because of the <laughs> books that were at, at the library. And I, I recently did a bike trip a couple of years ago with a couple of students. And like, it was interesting to sort of see like, they didn't actually have that sort of that sense of like danger where they got to like, be careful with what the, what the cars are. Like they all had pretty nice bikes, but I just got the sense like, they probably weren't riding them that much. It was more just like, I got to get this bike because my friends have this bike and it it's like the right brand. Um, and they're actually very like brand focused about this, which is kind of upsetting. Or well, trip. They didn't like they didn't have the experience to do the bike, actually bike on roads. And and we're in DC where there's sidewalks and bike lanes and things, and they just they didn't have that awareness. Yeah. 
And so kids walk to school much, much less than they did two generations ago. And the lack of walking is, is one problem. There are lots of other uh, policy issues. I mean, one of the complaints I have where I live now is the Little League fields are totally off limits to kids when they're not playing Little League. And my friend who's in the same hometown that we grew up in, uh, I told her, I said, my favorite memory was uh, from sports. I loved, I played varsity basketball and baseball. I love them. But my favorite memory was probably the pickup football games with my buddies that, you know, the rivalries that went on for a decade. And she said, yeah, my sons, uh, they get in trouble if they play pickup football. Because so she's like, feel she has to put her kids in year round baseball because Otherwise, they have nothing to do in the winter because they're not going to play tackle football. And if you're on the field without a permit, you get chased out. And that's that's one. Again, that's a, a local issue. But when we're talking about how policy is made by people without kids, you see how this becomes a vicious circle. Then you get a city council that doesn't have kids, doesn't see kids, doesn't think about kids. You get people who show up. This is happening in South Korea right now where there's so few babies. And there's multiple articles recently by people talking about how all the coffee shops, the donut shops are becoming child free. Because when people aren't used to children, they at best forget about them, but often start to think, well, what are you doing here? This is weird. And so then whole neighborhoods get built up without children in mind. That's scary, honestly. Like that's a scary prospect of like a future that you could have little niche areas or groups that would just exclude like it, i mean what i tell my kid is like you're the next version of me right like you're excluding your future <laughs> whether you continue on or not the species has to continue on and so that's why public policy sh should be pro-child and that's my argument that we in sort of western pluralistic liberalism we believe let people make their own choices, right? Like I would, if you came to me and said, do you support a subsidy for electric cars? I'd say, no, it's <laughs> the guy who buys the electric cars should get the benefit or the cost. We shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be helping and we shouldn't be making a decision. We shouldn't be picking winners or losers. Well, when it comes to kids, I think we should be. <laughs> not with <laughs> massive handouts, not with, you know, giant things like the $10,000 Tesla tax credit or whatever. But just when we're asked children or trees, children, when we're asked cars or kids, kids, when we are, and um, there's a lot of people who don't like that. The Wall Street Journal, and I, I cite this in the the one of the middle chapters of the book, the Wall Street Journal opposed increasing the child tax credit to $2,000 with this sort of jokey op-ed saying, what about people who chose to have puppies instead? Well, they chose to have puppies. Okay. That's great. Puppies are cute. They grow up to be dogs. I like dogs. I'm pro dog. We have two of them, but we really should be supporting and endorsing and accommodating. That's the word I use again, again, accommodating families, accommodating kids, because kids are people. <laughs> it's a government of the people, not a government of the puppies, government for the people. And to have a public policy system that is future oriented is also sensible. And I mean, it's impossible to talk without sounding cheesy, but children are the future. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say that line in the book because it's too corny, but it's, it's 100% all, true. All I can think about is, uh, I'm a big fan of The Simpsons, and I can think about is Maude Flanders going, won't somebody please think of the children? <laughs> <laughs> I should have made that the title of the book, yes. <laughs> uh, 
Um, do you have specific policy goals you might propose other than just like bringing this up of like, we got to think again, like we got to think about the children. We got to think about like the future, or is this more just to get people thinking about this to, to realize like when a policy comes through, they should really be considering how it's going to affect families in the future, even if they don't have kids or, you know, their kids are in the horizon, but not there yet. I have, the, I definitely have specifics more for local than federal government, but the main thing is right now we have a below replacement birth rate that is falling and is well below the ideal and the desired family size that people are saying. And so in that world, we really should have that lens when we're making policy of how can we support parents? How can we make it easier for young adults to get married and have kids? Because that's a shortcoming right now. I'm not saying in every culture and every society that would necessarily be true. If we had a birth rate of 4.0 and the ideal family size was 3.7, I wouldn't necessarily be making that point. But I really do think that has to be the lens. I, I talk about the child tax credit. I point out that the current $2,000 tax credit is just a fairness measure that my household of eight, if I'm making the same income as like eight dudes who live next door and all drive Uber, without the tax credit, I'd be paying three times as much as them in taxes because of the way the standard deduction, et cetera, works and the, and the tax rates. So that's a basic fairness measure. What's unfair is that it hasn't been indexed for inflation. So it's already lost about 10% of its value. What's also uh, bad policy is that we have subsidies for daycare. Those, so that means that if my wife wants to work less, well, she doesn't get that tax credit. If my wife wants to hire a babysitter so that she can go volunteer at St. James, she doesn't get the money. My wife wants to hire a babysitter so she can homeschool or so that she can take a nap. She can't get that tax credit. But if she if she hires a babysitter so that she can work a paid job, she gets that. That sort of that's the wrong sort of picking winners and losers. I would fold all that money into the child tax credit. I, I object to the fact that it ends. Uh, when uh, the the year that the child turns 17. So basically my 16 year old, boom, like we lost a child tax credit for the oldest one. So those are little tweaks. I don't think we should be throwing massive piles of money at people. And a lot of people will point to Hungary or they'll point to the, the desperate efforts in places like Japan or, or, you know, some Southern Europe countries that have these really low birth rates. I don't think those are proven to work. I really think you have to change the culture. And as you were asking, as far as policymakers, I think you just have to approach every question with, will this support families? Will this support parents who want to have another kid? No, I mean, think about the, those tax credits and stuff like that's a key area where it's kind of the nice balance of helping people that need that, but also like kind of not letting government be a big intrusive uh, claw on there and really trying to like tear apart your life and see like, are you actually following all the rules? Like it's, it's a good, it's a good balance. And like you said, like there's tax credits for daycare, there's tax credits for graduation for graduate school. Like there's a big middle area in there where you could actually find a spot to help families in need where they, they need childcare of some sort to help homeschool. Uh, you know, that's an education expense. Um, if they want to find a private school or something like make that available where, you know, we're already subsidizing public education. We're spending a lot of money on that. Um, and it kind of, realizing that maybe that's not the best situation for everyone and sort of how do you accommodate more families in that and help them as they want to make their children, uh, you know, grow and, and, you know, as Jeff was saying, become miniature versions of himself. And there's aspects of labor law that make it hard 
for people to work sort of super flexible part-time and in California, it's basically illegal to be an independent contractor because mm -hmm. of a bill. I think it's called AB5 or SB5, and it basically makes it illegal. Um, selling fudge out of your kitchen. I know people who have done that. I'm not going to say who they are because they were doing it in Montgomery County where it was illegal. Right? <laughs> it's just like the perfect stay-at-home mom job is selling fudge out of your kitchen, and it's illegal to do that in a lot of places. Yeah, Occupational licensing, again, this is more of a state-county thing but you can't be a hairdresser, like the perfect sort of um, part-time on your front porch gig to set up. So things that make it easier by employers and by uh, public policy for somebody who they had a baby three months later, I'm not going back to work, but it'd be really nice if I could make some money. I have these skills. There's a lot of aspects of labor law and licensing law that makes that harder. So that would definitely be a public policy thing because what parents need is flexibility. And a lot of parents, you know, would I think so when you look at polls of American mothers, actually, well, if you generally polls about Americans when it comes to something like a stay at home mom, most Americans think that the best arrangement is that one or both of the parents dial down their work so that they can do all or most of the daycare. And some of those people think, you know, stay-at-home mom. Some of those people think both of you guys work 30 hours and stagger it, but it's a vast minority, like 10% that think the best format is 40 hours by the mom, 40 hours of work by the dad, and paid daycare 40 hours a week. Very few people think that's the best arrangement. All of them happen to be op-ed writers for the Washington Post and the New York Times. That's <laughs> the only idea that they uh, that they consider. So, But basically what most American mothers want is to be able to when their children are not newborns to and are off at school to be able to work and be at home when the kids go out the door and be at home at three o'clock when the kids come back in or drop them off and pick them up. That's the optimal arrangement. That's made harder by uh, corporate policy and by government policy. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm there's a, a concept I always think of the uh, Albert J. Nock was this writer who said, talked about thinking or seeing like a state that government and regulators, they really want everything to be simplified and to fit into a few categories. And I mean, children do this too, right? I'm not calling your kids statists or anything, but children will be like, well, is it winter or is it autumn on December 1st? And you're like, well, it kind of depends. You know, you got meteorological stuff. It's after Thanksgiving, but, you know, it's not the, the no, no, it's got to be one way or another. And that's the way our politicians and bureaucrats think. You're either full-time or you're part-time. To be something in between doesn't fit into their categories and it, and it freaks them out. Um, and that, that that's one of the reasons. And employers too have to do that. I There's what I call new mom jobs. At, at, at a newspaper, there's some jobs that, you have to be in the office every day. But on the opinion page at the examiner where I work, there's this one woman, she got married. She's like, I want to have kids right away. So we made her be the editor for outside contributors because you're dealing with those people by email anyway. If you respond to their email 12, 24 hours later, it's fine. What she couldn't do was make a meeting, call a bunch of sources, go out and do reporting, meet multiple deadlines every day at a certain time of day. What she could do is 20 hours of work a week, very well, at her own pace, 
either while the baby's napping or after she takes her nap. No, that's good. I mean, like we we have a similar situation in my house where I'm working full time, but my wife is an assistant to my mother, a small real estate business. And like, that's a great opportunity for her to work a couple hours a week. It helps the family because it supplements my income. Um, but then it gives her something like it's meaningful work for her to do. Um, and, and it helps. And like, I think that's very key that a lot of families could do where you can find that sort of extra couple hours of work to help them make ends meet, especially as things get more expensive, but also to like find that kind of fulfillment, um, balance the family life. And like, I, I do like it. Wow. You frame that. It's like sending your kids off to school in the morning and then being there when they come home. And like, that's, that is so key for kids as they, as they grow and develop, like they need parents throughout that time. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned, uh, the, like the kids and the way that the policymakers see it, it's either gotta be like this or that. Right. And it's funny, like, I just, you know, I'm a parent, I'm trying to teach my kids thing. I wrote, I'm a poet. I wrote him a poem. Right. And the, the, the first line is life is positive and negative, but it's not all or nothing. Right. So there's different levels. You can go up or down, you can go left or right, you can go back and forth, whatever, but like, you're not trapped into that. You're not boxed into it because we are, very adaptable creatures, if you will. And like you said, parents need adaptability. We talked about with the kids and the like learning how to grow up and being able to have that freedom. They need adaptability, right? Like we need a, a system. And I think that's what our government is designed to do. It is a very adaptable governmental system, but we need it to be more adaptable. No. And, but one of, one of the things I just want to hammer away at again is I think that we need to not be afraid to say we are pro-family and not every time I say on Twitter, like, what do you think about having kids? What do you think about uh, if you can afford it, uh, one of the parents staying at home or at least working only part-time? And the answers are always, and Twitter is its own weird world, but it's always, well, if you're into that, fine. But like, I'm not going to tell anybody else what to do. Yeah. I'm not going to tell anyone else what to do, but to say, you know what? Having a stay-at-home parent is good. And by that, I mean, again, the person who's at home, even if they're working, the person who's there at three o'clock, the person who can spend more time thinking about family than about work, um, that that's good for communities too. That's somebody who's on the front porch um, to see the kid who wipes out on the bike. Or uh, I mean, I talked to many guys who, uh, one of the guys at the Ruddy Duck Tavern told me how he would he was throwing gravel at a dog when he was 12 and suddenly he gets yelled at by this stranger. She, he doesn't know, but it's in the same town, this woman on the front porch. And so then he tries to get home before his mom finds out. But of course, even without cell phones back then, his mom had found out that sort of thing is made stronger. So to say a stay at home parent is good. I mean, again, that's not going to be popular in, in the mainstream media, but most people agree with that. And to say, well, actually, when you grow up, getting married and having kids is sort of the standard thing to do. You are obviously free to choose what you want, but as a culture, we are going to build our culture around accommodating that lifestyle while being very tolerant of every other lifestyle. That's something that even that far that, well, family's normal, but we're totally tolerant. That triggers people. And that's something we have to get over because this the, the absolute neutrality on these key questions that leads to ultimately a family-unfriendly culture.
Tim, this has been fantastic. I uh, I can't read. I can't wait to read the book. Um, and uh, you know, I read you regularly. Uh, I think John mentioned that he reads you regularly here. Um, the Washington Examiner. All the time. Uh, all the time. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and and talking to us. Um, I I'm not afraid to say that I'm pro family. And it you know since I've gotten into like I got into politics when Youngkin was running in 2021, right? And that's part of the thing that kind of drew me in is this family aspect to government, as we talked about politics and parenting, right? Like we're very pro family. Um, I have a lot of kids. John's got a lot of kids. Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate somebody out there writing about it. Uh, I just think it's so important. Thank you. And I, I had tons of fun writing about it. And um, it meant that at one point we actually did, I let my son try out for a travel baseball team because I thought he would get cut. Okay. That's why I let him try out. So then he made it. And uh, the first winter practice, and this is how the book begins, uh, or chapter one begins, the first winter practice uh, indoors. I'm like, why kids don't need to practice baseball in January? What are we doing? It's this freezing cold night. I almost get an accident. He comes back in the car. I say, how was it? He said, first thing coach said was baseball isn't fun. Winning baseball is fun. So I got home. I said, okay, Katie, we made a mistake. A, we're never going to do this again. B, every bad thing that happens is fodder for my book. So there you go. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for joining us. And you're welcome back anytime you got something juicy to talk about. <laughs> thank you. I I'll look forward to it. Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you know, this reminds me a little bit of, about your previous book that you wrote, uh, Alienated America, that I had a chance to listen as an audiobook. And I it's a lot of this of similar themes that I think we're we're working on where it's sort of society is kind of changing in a bad way. And I think like you bring a lot of ideas in that Alienated America book about like how family structure is so important. And I, I really like the, the fact that this book is going to go more into how we can we can kind of build policies that are going to help families make things better as we go along. So it's uh, I can't look I can't wait to read it when it comes out in, in March. Uh, Jeff, what do you think of it? Uh, I mean, I had a great time on the interview. I loved. Uh, obviously, I'm pro family. You know, everybody knows I'm pro family. I want more kids. I just can't afford them. Uh, and policies in my way. It turns out, according to Tim in this book, I'm excited to read it. Um, and then I really enjoyed uh, about his article. Um, you know. The whole time, every time you guys were talking, all I could think about is Benjamin Franklin's snuff box. But I never got, I never actually said anything about it in the story. And I was just like, oh man, this is a great opportunity to tell the story about Benjamin Franklin's snuff box. And then I got sidetracked on something else. But we have to talk about that. The Benjamin Franklin snuff box is where our like idea of direct versus indirect corruption comes from. It was written into the Articles of Confederation. And when Benjamin Franklin came back from France, um, King Louis gave him this diamond encrusted snuff box. And he basically gave it to Congress and was like, I don't know what to do with this because it wasn't, it was a gift after the fact, right? It was a gift of relationship. This is a normal thing that happens with governments. It's like how you build relationships, but it's like, well, is he going to expect something from you later? And also, is it going to soften the hearts of the people who've received the gift to want to do something for them later? And our Congress thought that this was probably a bad thing. Their idea of the emoluments clause was to restrict 
indirect corruption in the government because this has become a problem over time. That's a good, I remember that story. And I think that that's always been a problem with ambassadorships where they'll go overseas, they'll get special gifts again, like, cause that's just kind of how businesses run overseas where you're trying to build relationships, you're trying to smooth things over and you give nice things. Uh, I'm thinking of like the Anderson house in DC where um, Mr. Anderson was a diplomat at some point. And there's some of the things that he got on his journeys over, I think in Japan. Um, and like, that was the same kind of issue. Like, you know, who who ultimately is trying to be influenced by these gifts so it's important to remember like the uh where the money comes from and the fact again i loved how we brought up prudence and like I, i'd like to talk about the four cardinal virtues because i think that's so key you know you know prudence justice temperance fortitude but prudence is is that aspect of like yes it's not illegal but maybe people are going to perceive it incorrectly and it's something that i should think about Sort of, you know, like people like to bring up a three, especially with Trump, like three-dimensional chess. Like, oh, you just don't understand these, these moves he's making because he's thinking like four or five turns ahead of you. And maybe he is, maybe he's not. But in that same sense, like maybe you should also be thinking like four head moves ahead of you. Like, is someone going to look at this move that was made and be like, that person is directly corrupted by something else that happened to him? And if there's any perception of that, like that's where you as a statesman have to actually think, step back and think like, I really... Yeah, it's okay, but I really shouldn't go in that direction because it, it may not be the best for everyone. So I think like that's that's a key aspect that that needs to be brought up and and thought about more from from leadership, from from our leaders as they attempt to uh, guide and and move the citizenry to make the right decision on everything. Yeah, and you know what I think we should do? I think we should elect different leaders. I think we should elect bold leaders. I think we should elect you, John. That's why you're running for Congress, right? That's right. Yeah. Bold leadership, different ideas. And, and uh, you know, I, actually, it has been fun collecting signatures. As I mentioned, like, it's just an opportunity to talk to about people and sort of be like, yeah, I'm running as a Republican. I think I'd agree, you know, on most of the Republican things, but I'm actually really running on congressional reform. And I think that like, that's something that appeals to more people than just the Republican electorate. I think, you know, that's, you know, the Republican electorate, the Republican nomination is the vehicle to sort of maybe get that in front of more people. But I think like that's something that did a lot as as we talked about in Falk here this past week, you know, talking about being away from family, like 15% of, of people don't agree with what Congress is doing. Like they think that Congress is being doing a bad job. So that means 85% of Americans think Congress could could be doing something better. And so to come in there and talk about congressional reform, fixing Congress, fixing how it works, even if it's if it's policies that maybe you don't do or not do not agree with just to have a debate about those is is key and something that's necessary for our country. Yeah, I mean, I tell people all the time, I've been knocking doors since 2021 with Youngkin. And every door that I knock, every person that I meet in a and I talk politics with, I typically ask them one question. What do you think about Congress? And they go, I don't like it. And I go, what do you think about writing some rules to fix Congress? What do you think about congressional reform? And they go, I can get back behind that. And it doesn't matter if they're Republican doors or Democrat doors or independent doors. Nobody's happy with Congress. Everybody understands it's a problem. You just need people who actually have ideas to fix the problem. And I think that's how it gets started. And uh, I think that's what we're trying to do. Right, John? That's right. Absolutely. So again, thank you everyone for listening. Again, it's been nice to meet people on the campaign trail that listen to the podcast. So 
shout out to all you out there. Uh, we appreciate that. But again, you can listen and uh, read our work on politicsandparenting.substack.com. Uh, Jeff's on Twitter at jmayhew28, and I'm on at, on Twitter at baby for us, um, and I guess on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram as baby for us. So lots of things out there, and then my website is baby for us, and I appreciate you guys seeing what we do. Um, you know, there's a hit we did on Fox News this past week. If you're interested in seeing leaders out there talking about crime and politics and uh, all the things we can fix. So again, thank you for everyone. And uh, with that, have a good night. We'll see, talk to you soon. Peace and love.